if you have a Bible, you can open it up to Psalms, the book of Psalms. It's right in the middle of your Bible when you open it up. We're looking today at Psalm 84. If you don't have a Bible today, we have a stack of Bibles at the back. You're welcome to grab one right now. Hop up and grab it, and you can take it with you. It's our gift to you. We're glad for you to have that. We're looking at Psalm 84 in our series on the Psalms. We'll get to there in a moment. Well, we've not had too hard of a winter. It's been pretty easy. I don't think I've pulled the shovel out once, which is a good thing. But, you know, even with that in mind, this time of year, it's, it's a time of longing. We look forward to warmer days. We look forward to sunshine. Maybe you look forward to gardening. Maybe you're just looking forward to not being sick. I get it. Or maybe you're looking forward to like your kids not being perpetually sick and then handing it off one to the other. It's like, please, will springtime never come? We're looking forward to vacation. We're looking forward to lots of things. That's kind of the way it is this time of year. And it fits really with the tone of the psalm we're going to be looking at today, Psalm 84. It's a psalm of longing, of yearning, of desiring And we're going to dive right into that this morning. So we see that in this psalm, the psalmist, the author of the psalm, is longing for something. What is he longing for? Let's look and find out. Verses 1 to 4. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. Yes, my soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy. Actually, probably better translated, cry out to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home in the swallow, a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. So we see here the psalmist is longing for what? For the presence of God. This is an expression of desire. It's what he wants. He doesn't have it. It's what he wants. There's a longing for the presence of God. Where? In the temple in Jerusalem. Yes, God is everywhere. But somehow he said, I'm going to make my presence dwell, especially at the temple. It's the hot spot, as it were, of God's presence. He's yearning. Why? Because he can't get there. There are some clues in the text. It may be that there was military unrest. Maybe there were some marauding bands of intruders in the land, and he just couldn't get from where he lived the long journey to the capital city of Jerusalem where the temple was, but he wanted to be there. Do you notice the words that are used? Longing, fainting, crying out for God. In fact, he envies the birds. The birds can just take wing, fly all the way to the temple, and what do they find there? Welcome. Welcome even for the young. Right near the altar and the temple of the Lord, they can build a nest, and they're welcome there. Wow, I wish I could do that, is what we're learning today. That there is a desire to be where God is. So is it just a desire? Does it move beyond that at all? Yes, that's the next section. The psalmist doesn't just want to be near God. He takes steps to go there. Let's look at verses 5 to 7. 
Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. That's Jerusalem. So here we see the psalmist not only longing for God's presence, but moving toward God's presence, moving from expressing desire to going there, even if it means embracing difficulty. Because when he heads out, he, does, it's not, he doesn't take the train to Jerusalem. He's walking, and he walks through, it says, the Valley of Baca. That means it has to, the idea there is it's an arid place, a desert place, a wilderness, not friendly territory, not pleasant It's difficult, but that's the road that he's going to take to get to the presence of the Lord. And in fact, it says when God's people go through a dry place like that, it's like they bring their own water with them. It's not a place where they're just in despair. There is joy and blessing because they take it with them. And God sends his blessing, the early rain, so that even a dry places are filled now with pools of water. And they move on from where they were toward the presence of the Lord, even through difficulty, but they don't leave having all the difficulty in their backpack and they're ready to face any challenge. No, it's day by day, step by step, because it says they move on from strength to strength until finally they make it all the way to the presence of the Lord in Zion. So the Lord didn't promise it'd be an easy trip. But they are determined to go in the strength that the Lord provides, even through difficulty, because they yearn for the presence of the Lord. So the question is, why? Why all this desire to be in the Lord's presence? Why the willingness to go through difficulty to get there? Well, the answer is in verses 10 to 12. The psalmist says this, Here's why it's worth the longing and the hardship. Because a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Why? Because the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly, with integrity. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. So why the longing? Why is he longing for Jerusalem and the temple? Why is he willing to plod through dry places? Because the destination makes it worthwhile. So if you know me, you know that I don't like making long road trips. I don't like being stuck in the car for hours. And it, it might have something to do with little kids in the back, but it also has to do with, I, I just don't like sitting in one place for long periods of time. It's just, it's always been kind of grueling for me. Oh, well, my problem. But once or twice, sometimes three times a year, uh, we make long road trips. 1,000, 2,000 miles, sometimes multiple circuits. Why? To see family. Because our family lives at some distance. And we've made that decision to be with family when we get the opportunity because it's worth it. 
we love being with family. And even if that means being stuck in the front seat of a car for 14 hours, it's worth it. I'd do it again. And the psalmist here is saying, it's worth the hardship. It's worth the longing because of the destination. What do we learn about the destination? It's better one day in the presence of the Lord is better than a thousand days anywhere else. In fact, I'd rather be just near God at the door, a doorkeeper, than to have the comforts and the pleasures of being stable in wickedness. Why? Well, it says God is a son, S-U-N. What? Does it mean he's big and fiery and, you know, what, what does it mean? Well, it's obviously it's a figure of speech. What is the point of this figure of speech? Well, the son here is the source of blessing. Why do you want to be near the Lord? Because all the good things that you enjoy come from him. That's, and he gave them to you so you would enjoy them. Everything in this world comes from God. He's the source. And when he gives you things to enjoy, he wants you to do the, the math and realize, if I enjoy this, what must the source be like? He wants you not just to look at the, the shaft of light coming from the sun, but to follow the beam back up to the source. If you like the gift Won't you love the giver as much as you love love letters? How much more is there to love in the one who wrote them? He's a son. No wonder he wants to be there. He's a son. He's also a shield, a protector. Because in this good, but now because of our sin, fallen and broken world we live in, there's much we need to be protected from. Sometimes it's from enemies hardship, threats, but also sometimes even the good things we enjoy can become too important and they threaten our spiritual well-being as we love them more than God and God is a protector from the world he made for us. He's a son. He's a shield. But there's more. Why else was the psalmist wanting to be where God is? Because he gives things. What does he give? It says he gives honor or grace. Favor means grace. What are we talking about here? We're talking about, this is how God makes a people. God, out of his kindness and love, causes people who didn't love God at all, he calls them and brings them and makes them his people. Those who are far off, he's brought near. He gives grace. He's brought us to be his people. But he also gives honor or glory In other words, the gifts God gives us now is not the end of the story. One day, he will bring a people to be with him in glory forever. He gives grace and glory. And in the meantime, he doesn't allow anything to affect his people, those that are loyal to him, who have integrity before him, those who belong to him, that isn't for their good. And as we journey through maybe those dry places, seeking the presence of the Lord because he's so good and so gracious, a sun, a shield, sometimes we just have to trust. And that's how it ends. Blessed are all those who trust in you. So, having such a wonderful destination, you could see why it would prompt the road trip to Jerusalem. 
You can see why he would long to be there even when he can't. And so he prays. In verses 8 and 9, he prays now. I believe he's a prayer that God would open finally the pathway so he could make the trip. He prays to the Lord of hosts. That's the Lord of armies. And he prays for the anointed one, that is the king, the one who leads the armies, the one who protects Jerusalem. So this is what he prays. He prays for the king. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield. It's talking about the king. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. In other words, give our king success so we can make the trip to Jerusalem once more. The anointed king will open that way to be in the presence of God. So you might say, well... Okay, interesting. Psalm 84. That's the way it was then. There's not a temple in Jerusalem. That was 3,000 years ago. I mean, is that still the way it is today? So let's transition now from the Psalms into the New Testament. Jesus, he's the Messiah. You know what Messiah means, right? The word. It means anointed one. He's the king. And the king who by his death and resurrection overcame all enemies and overcame and opened up all obstacles to the presence of God. By his death and resurrection, he brought victory for God's people and blazed the pathway through the wilderness into the presence of God. And he's held the door open now for all who follow him. Just like Psalm 84. And so now all Christians have access to the very same presence of God. How? Where? I mean, there isn't a temple, right, that we go to. Where's that hot spot of God's glory now? Well, the answer actually is the same. It is the temple. Really? Yes, we meet God where he meets with us. Well, Where is that? Well, the temple in the New Testament is not a place. It's a person. It's Jesus. He is the place of God's presence. Remember, the Gospel of Matthew calls him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And we read this very thing In John chapter 2, Jesus is talking to some people, and he's standing right by the temple, and Jesus says this. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days? But he, John clarifies, was speaking about the temple of his body. He, not a massive brick structure, stone structure. He, Jesus, is the place where now God meets with man through sacrifice. It's the place of his presence. Here's a quote that that says much the same thing. Jesus replaces the temple of Jerusalem as the source of life and renewal. He does this Because he's the ultimate meeting point between God and humanity by virtue of his incarnation, death, and exaltation. In his own person and in his saving work, he does all that the temple 
was meant to do. So now, all who belong to Jesus have and can enjoy the presence of God. In fact, right, we know this from 1 Corinthians, that all individuals, we, individually, we are temples of God, right? Don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? So because we're connected to Jesus and he gives us his spirit, now we are little temples. But the emphasis in the New Testament is not that we as people are temples, but that we corporately as the people of God are temple, is the temple of God. Did you notice this? Look at 1 Corinthians 3. Paul writes, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Where it says, do you not know that you are God's temple? That word you, that pronoun, it's plural. But the word temple is singular. Don't you know that you, all of you, all 350 of you here, don't you know that you all are a temple? God meets with his people here because of Jesus, because we're connected to Jesus. So this is what's going on later in the book of 1 Corinthians when Paul is talking now about one of their church services. 1 Corinthians 14. He says, but in the church service, if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he's convicted by all. He's called into account by all. The secrets of his heart being disclosed. And so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare what? That God is really among you. You see, God meets with us when we meet together. We're the temple. Here's another quote. The people of God continue to be the spirit-filled community when they disperse and go about their daily affairs. Sure, we're still filled with God's spirit out there. But their identity as the temple of the Lord finds particular expression when they gather together in Jesus' name to experience his presence and power in their midst. We're the temple when we gather. We as a church are a temple. Not the building. Now, we might call a room on the, on the property the sanctuary, the holy place, but it's not a location. That's just a building. We're the sanctuary. We're the temple. The people. It's not a building. It's not the organization, a 501c3 corporation, but it's the gathering. When God's people gather, it's like bricks, like living stones coming together into the temple where God meets with us, his people. Remember Jesus said in the Gospel of Matthew, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So this is why when you walk down the hall, you see on the wall these different things, these emphases that we want everyone who comes here to engage with. Encounter Christ, experience community, and embrace a calling. What's the first one? Encounter Christ. We're talking primarily about our services, our gatherings, because it's in our gatherings that we are the temple coming together and Jesus meets with us. So we want you to come with a sense 
of expectation that you'll do more than just come in and sit and listen and sing and leave, but that you will actually, truly, regularly encounter Christ himself. How? I mean, what does that look like? It's like he's behind a curtain. How do we meet with him when we gather? Where, is, where does he presence himself? We'll talk about three different ways this morning. First of all, we meet with him in the word. He speaks to us. There's something about the fact that Jesus is present when his word is present. There's a connection between the person and the word. So even Jesus, in his incarnation, was called what? The word. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And in that hot spot of God's presence in the Old Testament, the temple, there was the Ark of the Covenant. And inside the Ark of the Covenant was the Ten Commandments. At the very center of the presence of God is always his word. This is why Jesus said in Luke 10, the one who hears you, hears me. That's why Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 says something very striking. And we would say, well, yeah, he's an apostle. He can say stuff like this. But notice he says us. So it's Paul and others. What does he say? And we also thank God constantly for this. What? That when you receive the word of God, which you heard from whom? From us. You accepted it. Not as the word of men, but as what it really is. The word of God. So another theologian says this, when we read the word, we encounter him, that is God. When we encounter him, we hear his word. So you want to be near Jesus? You want to experience his presence? Listen. He's here and he presences himself in his word. His word, that's every service, the word of God is central. It, it, it comes out in everything we do. We read the word. We teach the word. Our songs are filled with the word. Our prayers are filled with the word. The word is in everything we do. You hear the voice of Jesus in his word. He's here. He's present through his word. He speaks. He's also present at the table. At the table, he welcomes. He welcomes. In Luke chapter 22, it's the Last Supper. And Jesus gathers and there's bread and cup. And it says this, something very striking. It says in Luke twenty-two twenty, And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out from you, said Jesus, is the new covenant in my blood. So somehow, Jesus is drawing a straight line between the Lord's Supper, communion, bread and cup, and new covenant. Well, what does that even mean? So what's a covenant, right? A covenant is an agreement. 
So you say you have two farmers, they've got a, a, a land dispute on the, where's the boundary, and so they're kind of hostile, they finally decide how they're going to settle things, they come to terms, and they sign an agreement. This is where the land is, this is how I'll behave, this is how you'll behave, and they sign the agreement and they go from being hostile to amicable. They go from being enemies to being friends. They signed an agreement. Now, in olden days, in the Bible, those covenants were often sealed with a meal, which shows there was war, and now it's good. So this is what happens when God makes the first covenant with his people on Mount Sinai. You know, when he gave them the Ten Commandments. He says, I'll make a deal with you. Here's the agreement. I'll be your God. You'll be my, you'll be my people. I'll care for you. You live and display what I'm like to the world. And so before that, when God came down on the mountain and gave the Ten Commandments, he said, no one comes up on the mountain at all. You'll, you'll die. But then after the agreement was made and all was well, He invited the elders of the people, the representatives, to come up onto the mountain. And what did they do? They had a class on the Ten Commandments. No, they ate a meal together with the Lord. And Jesus eats with sinners. And at the Lord's, at the Last Supper, Jesus sits and it's now a new covenant meal. It's a meal commemorating the fact that we used to be enemies of God away from God's promises, and now we've been made his very own people, and we celebrate that, and we still do, with a meal. A meal that says, you are welcome at this table. You are welcome in my family. All is well, because the elements at the table remind us of his death, which paid for all our sins. It's all good. Pastor in London, John Stott, said it this way, Jesus did not only break the bread, he gave it to his disciples to eat. He did not only pour out the wine, he gave it to them to drink. He was not content that they should watch and listen. They must eat and drink. So the service is communion as well as commemoration. So at the table, we remember what he did. There's no benefit in just the, it's just juice and bread. Those don't take away our sins. Those don't commend us to God. We remember because they point back to what he really did. Body broken, blood poured out. And he's not in the elements, but he's at the table. Always saying, I've made it right. Welcome. Pull up a chair. We enjoy him at the table because he's present with us and we enjoy his welcome. He's present in his word when, he, when it's spoken. He's present at the table. And he welcomes. He's also present through the gifts and we find their help. So where is this in the Bible? Let's go back to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and it's also the same phrase as used in chapter 14. Paul says, to each, to each one, okay, it's you, it's you. To each one is given, what? It says the manifestation of the Spirit. Why? For the common good. So it's talking about what we call the spiritual gifts. These are abilities and talents 
that you've had from God, either from physical birth or spiritual new birth, that God has given to you for the good of believers around you. There are four lists in the New Testament. They're not exhaustive, but they're a great place to start. Maybe you know, well, the question is, how has God wired you? There typically are two categories of gifts, speaking and serving. Hands, mouth, okay? Maybe you have some of both. Maybe you have one or the other. Different kinds. And what Paul calls these gifts is amazing. The label he puts on it is the manifestation of the Spirit. So if you want to see God present by His Spirit, it manifests itself in the gifts. The gifts manifest. It's the display of the Spirit. Whoa. Is that true? Well, that's what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4. Let's look at that. It says, as each has received a gift, okay, same topic, use it to serve one another. How? As good stewards of the grace of God, of God's varied grace. It's not just one kind. It's a, just a kaleidoscope of variety of grace. So let's unpack that last phrase. We, when we use gifts, when you use your gift, you are being a steward what does that mean? Well, a steward is not the owner. So if you have a king and he delegates the rule of his kingdom to a steward, it's not, he doesn't own it. He's not the, the originator. He doesn't possess the kingdom, but he's responsible and he uh, affects the will of the king. He is a middleman. The authority isn't his. The authority is just delegated to him. So when we use the spiritual gifts when we serve and speak for the good of others, however God's wired you, the grace comes from God. You're not the source of it, but you're the pass-through. You're the, the steward, the, the channel. You're not the source. You're the pipe. And what comes out the other end is your gift and God's grace. So when someone is served by you or hears your words, you realize what they experience is nothing less than God's own grace. His help. That's incredible. I would never have written that. That's audacious. But it's true. Here's how one pastor talked about it. He said, we are recipients of grace and it is our duty to disperse this grace for others. The vehicle by which we make these disbursements is spiritual gift. Wow. In other words, we encounter Jesus when we interact with his body. So when he was here on earth incarnate, people interacted with his body. He touched, he healed, he taught. And now that he's in heaven, but through his spirit, this temple is also his body, the body of Christ. The hands and feet and mouth of Jesus here. And when people, when we interact with Jesus' body, look around, that's you, we're experiencing the grace and help of nothing, no one less than Jesus. Jesus. 
here. Let's go back to Psalm 84. If you long for the Lord, I mean, you can meet him anywhere. God was everywhere, but especially present at the temple. He's everywhere, but still is uniquely present in this temple. When we gather, And when we gather, we find and enjoy and benefit from his presence in the word when he speaks, at the table when he welcomes, and in the, through the gifts as we receive his help, through the interactions with other people. You want to find Jesus? You want to experience Jesus? You want to be with Jesus? That's where he is. So what if you heard that your favorite team or group or celebrity or personality was coming to Philadelphia mid-March? I mean, you could watch them online. You already do. You could stream them to your phone. You could um, enjoy them in your car. Oh, but, I mean, to be there in person, right? Like right there, 50 feet away. You bet I'm going. Absolutely. Well, it's a lot of money. Yeah? It's going to be a drive. Yep. And the parking. Yep. I'm going. It's going to be good. So what if you found out that Jesus is coming to Philadelphia? Wells Fargo Center, May 15th. Would you go? Uh, I mean, he's everywhere. Right? I mean, he's God. Come on. Don't you know your theology? God is everywhere. I don't have to go to Philadelphia to meet Jesus. Are you kidding me? No way. No way we wouldn't do that. If somehow he was going to be uniquely present at the Wells Fargo Center, sign me up. I'm buying tickets. I'm planning early. Here we go. I can't wait. Every week, Jesus, really? truly meets with us when we gather. He's everywhere. Yes, this is true. But in some unique sense, we would never have said this. He's told us, I'm uniquely present when you gather near the temple. And when two or three, I'm there and I'm going to presence myself at least in three ways. Through word, at the table, and through the gifts. I mean, after all, I mean, this, he's uniquely present. I mean, this is the only time the whole body's together. So what does this mean? So I leave the message today with three hopes, three aspirations for you. First, I hope this means that if you only come to church occasionally, and maybe it's here, maybe it's somewhere else, this isn't the temple, the only one. I mean, like there's thousands and tens of thousands of assemblies of God's people across the face of the earth, all of them equally the place of his presence. I hope that if you only come occasionally, you'll not just attend church, this one or others, more, but that you'll want to. I hope you walk out thinking, I'm never going to think about a church service again the same way. I want to go. Second, 
I hope it means that all of us will come with a greater sense of expectancy. More than just out of maybe a sense of duty or maybe like a healthy desire to, for a good thing. I mean, church is good. I should be there. It's not guilt-driven. It's, it's a good thing. But I hope that you'll come more than duty, more than just because it's good and healthy. I hope you'll come with a sense of expectancy. It's not just like any other meeting. Jesus is here in a unique way. That you look for him to do things that maybe he wouldn't do in the same way anywhere else in your week. That you're looking for him and listening for him in his word. You're in trying to engage in fellowship with him at the table. And that through the gifts, you are giving to others the grace of Jesus, the manifestation of the Spirit, and receiving it as such yourself. I hope that there's a greater sense of expectancy when you pull into 316 Red Mill Road. Third, I also hope it means that you make time for his presence before and after the official service times. That you make time for meaningful interaction with others. So, 8.30 to 9.30, first service. 11 to 12-ish, second service. And in those service times, we've got Jesus presenting himself in the Word and at the table. But it's the pre-game and post-game show where we interact with each other. It's not like when we say, Amen, Jesus leaves the building. So if that's your routine, oh, let me just suggest you're missing out. You're missing a chance to be helped by Jesus himself as you interact with others and, and the people that would be helped by you are not going to receive that same kind of help. It's like if you injure your leg and you're on crutches, which I've been on a couple times. When that part of the body isn't working, other parts of the body compensate, but they take a beating. Your arms, your shoulders, you know how it is. And when parts of the body aren't here and they aren't engaged and they're not doing what God designed you to do, other people are compensating and the body gets kind of roughed up a bit. It's not the way it ought to be. We're all kind of suffering because you're not here. We need you. We want you here. I want to talk to you. You have something that Jesus has wired in you that his grace is going to come through you as you speak and serve and it's going to, it's going to help me. I, I need you. And you need me. We need each other. And that's where we meet Jesus as we interact with the body. So, church family, let's pursue the presence of God it's what the psalmist was about in Psalm 84. He longed, he moved, he wanted to be in the presence of God. He was yearning for that. Let's make the rest of 2017 and beyond a pursuit of the presence of God. Yeah, individually, yeah. But let's pursue him together. Let's make it a habit to be together. Make it a habit to listen, to be at the table, to interact with each other. 
Let's pursue the presence together. Let's encounter Christ together. Would you pray with me? Father, if you had not pursued us, we would never have pursued you. If you had not come and made your presence among us, we would never have found you. But you have come to where we are. And we hear you. We hear you speaking. We sense your presence at the table. And you're welcome. And we feel your help through the gifts of our brothers and sisters. Lord, you're so kind. If we are your people without your presence, we are barely your people at all. You are what makes us unique. You are what makes us your people. What are your people without you? So Lord, renew in us a love for our time together. Cultivate our desire to be in your presence. May our hearts long for us to see you and experience you as sun and shield and giver of grace and glory. So we pray all these things in the name of Christ, who has opened the way to the presence of God for us forever. Amen.